Well, Mark, we've been coming in nice and smooth on the podcast for the last two weeks as we do Nirvana, probably because we feel like we're in our comfort zone, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is part three of Nirvana. It's our first normal album, part three year. Um, but they are a mighty fucking band, so there was a lot to cover. Yeah. Before we jump back into the show, mm. uh, do we have any admin that we should be covering here? So in the last couple of weeks, you've been calling out certain parts of the world to can get in on, on the subscription game. Well, I'm going to call it the Americans because they are our biggest audience. The Yanks. Inexplicably, most of our listeners are in America. But they don't Make yourselves that. known. <laughs> None <laughs> of those buggers pay. What I'm asking is make yourselves known. You guys are affluent. Yeah. You're still the biggest No, are you still the biggest economy? We'll have to check yeah. <laughs> We'll have to check It has been a couple of weeks I mean, you've got COVID coming back So I mean, you're going to be inside for a little bit So Yeah, you could, fucking hell We're sorting you You could use some of that cash to buy us a beer Yeah, get us a beer Over here, that is a, In the pub near me, £4 But I mean, most pubs, £6 it Depends what you really feel we deserve But In Wembley Stadium, it's £8 So it's only half pint <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd really appreciate some Americans Getting on board with some Lowest tier mm. endorsement Patreon yeah. subscription. So, Americans, how about you dig deep and help us out? Mm. Uh, we could do with some more subs, and the people in Scotland can then benefit from a live episode <laughs> doing American hair metal. We might even try and live stream it if it's technically possible. Hey, I'm going to see an American podcast that made it over to the UK tomorrow that I never thought would. That's pretty cool. So, maybe if he's fucking actually paid for this, <laughs> we might actually be able to do that one day as well. Yeah. It's maybe. not going to happen uh-huh. unless somebody actually starts digging deep. Indeed. Um, but yeah. This is the Unsung Podcast mm-hmm. uh, That is Mark I'm Chris Forgot to do that bit yep. Because it's getting Professional. late Professional <laughs> um, And we are going to dive back into our coverage Of Incesticide by Nirvana A very unusual album In that it was a thrown together uh, stopgap Really mm-hmm. uh, Between the hugely successful Nevermind And the proper studio follow up in utero But I feel uh, There is a lot to discuss And a lot of goodness to glean from this record Hence why I brought it to the table At the risk of undermining the entire unsung mm-hmm. concept um, But fuck it It sold what one fifteenth of the album before it? Yes, it did um, So yeah, let's uh, I can't remember exactly where we were Oh yeah, let's, let's jump back in Let's talk about some moderate rock <laughs> <laughs> The following year uh, posthumous release MTV Unplugged Which you, you've touched on Now our final contribution Is going to come from Craig Down Under This was his choice And that's kind of Coming from the fact That I know Craig Is not like a massive Nirvana fan I know he appreciates them uh-huh. I know he's not a huge fan, but uh, this is the album that is the exception. This, to him, is essential listening. So let's have a listen to what he's got to say, and we'll come back with our own feelings on what would prove to be their sort of... It's not their final release, but uh, their final canon release, Mm -hmm. let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Hey, Unsung. It's your boy Craig here from the freezing cold land down under. Uh, Talking Nirvana. Not a massive, massive Nirvana guy. Um, Pretty formative, I guess. If I had to pick an album, it would probably be MTV Unplugged in New York. I know it sounds a bit basic, 
I was thinking about In Neutral. Um, strangely, my favourite song by Nirvana is uh, Tourette's, which isn't really a song, it's just a, a jam, I guess. But um, Unplugged in New York turned me on to lots of other things because of the covers they did on it as well. And it was really a, like, it showed you how good Kurt Cobain's voice was just sitting down with an acoustic. It was amazing. Um, and yeah, and it was pretty iconic for the age I am as well. Like, everyone had it on VHS and the set looked great. And yeah, it was just a really cool thing, a staple of. Uh, teenagers when I was young so MTV Unplugged in New York from Craig hope you're well a lot of people were um, conceived to that record I imagine <laughs> <laughs> like Craig as a perennial promoter uh, talking about how good the set looked yeah, I mean, it, it, they are a gateway, aren't they? So on this, because there's a lot of other musicians. Uh, I mean, this is a this is a feature in Nirvana. We're about to go into that in a bit more depth, but uh, yeah, they used Unplugged as a way to platform a lot of their influences and personal loves. Yeah, you mentioned this earlier on as well. Probably the biggest takeaway for what Craig had to say there was just the showcase for the raw talent, well, not just the vocal, but just the raw ability. Kurt was not. By any means the best guitarist going But there was a flair There was a panache There was like an, an, an emotional content to his playing And the other guy I mean Dave Grohl is a great drummer uh, Chris Novoselic was a, an underrated bass player Very good did a, did a lot His style I think really undergirds the likes of bands like Placebo and Muse mm, You know where it's very power trio focused mm. You know, I think uh, I think actually Kurt gets a bit of a bad rap as a guitar player Because some of the stuff from Bleach and Anesthesicide He can play Mm-hmm. You know, there's some interesting solos and some actually some metal riffs as well, which are would be difficult to play for somebody that was just a bit shit. He's unorthodox, you know? though. Yeah, he's unorthodox in his style. In terms of Unplugged, the first posthumous release, we mentioned that earlier on. I think what this did, and this is maybe a different spin on something you said earlier on, was that this created an incredibly rounded legacy for the group, mm-hmm. right? It elevated them. Above noisy, bratty punks and curmudgeons It showed, as we said, nuance and flair I think it arguably redefined, for example, that track The Man Who Sold The World In a sort of a similar way to the way Johnny Cash and Hurt did You know, I'd, how many people rate David Bowie's version above Nirvana's version? Can't be that many. Mm-hmm. Um, the inclusion of people like Melora Kreger on cello gave them like a sort of intellectual edge there. We spoke about Chris and Kirk Kirkwood and the Meek Puppets, the, the three tracks by them, Oh Me Like a Fire Plateau. Real underground credibility chops there, you know, I guess that's Partly calculated, but also just partly born of a love of what the, those musicians were doing. I think Jesus Doesn't Want Me For A Sunbeam has a similar kind of upbeat, beautiful, ironically hymnal quality mm-hmm. to it. And the, the thing that 
jumps out of this release the most to me is Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Closing. Unbelievable. It's it unbelievable. An incredible performance. When you watch that show, as good as it is, you can get to that penultimate track and be like, this has been fucking brilliant. I really hope it ends strongly. I don't think you could possibly think that they've let, as good as that show is, that they've left the best to last. Mm-hmm. But it is sensational. It was a defining moment for the group. I mean, everyone from the fact that they were like a swamp blues band back on Bleach and they're playing like swamp blues to when you watch the video of it, Craig's talking about everybody had the VHS and I have seen it a lot as well as heard it. That shot, that famous shot of Kurt's eyes, the final inhalation yeah. before the last I'm time. nodding here, yeah. And <laughs> he just looks like he's in a different realm at that moment. It's fucking powerful. Like, yeah. I, I defy anybody who can make snide remarks with this band. You don't have to love Nirvana, but that is a fucking absolutely fantastic, unimpeachable performance of mm-hmm. a piece of music. There's nothing too hammy about it. There's nothing too cheesy about it. There's nothing contrived about it. It's really, really fucking good. Mm-hmm. I, I, I genuinely haven't heard anybody ever make a convincing argument in any way against how fucking strong that particular song especially is. Then this is the release that I think cemented Nirvana, not just as something of the domain of Enemy or even Kerrang, because you can see how Nirvana would be a Kerrang band. You can see how Nirvana would be a cool indie, the heavier edge of indie band. This got them forever into Mojo and Q and Empire. This was the album that made them feel like they belonged on the front cover of those Mm -hmm. magazines as well. And, you know, whether that's a bit uncool or not, I think that's a huge part of why they have such a big footprint, cultural footprint. You know, we're we're saying it's a little bit normy. It is a little bit normy. It's a little bit dad rock. Oh, your, your parents have this album. But it broadened their appeal so much. And it made so much of, you know, the trickle down effect of that. You know, how many people heard about the Vaselines because of that? How many people heard about Sean and Knife mm-hmm. because their parents had unplugged? I mean, I just think there's no net negative to that. Yeah. Um, the thing that kind of annoys me a little bit about it is the fact that, you know, given how close it was released toward after Kurt's death, it feels a bit like a cash grab on the part of the record label. Mm, probably is to some extent. But, yeah, I would say it definitely is, but it, it moves beyond that, right? There's a lot of folk rock in this, and it's that's what makes it quite interesting to me. Uh, th- like I said earlier on, they've rearranged the songs in some ways. In fact, the accordion and Jesus Don't Want Me for a Sunbeam is not something you would ever imagine being a, a Nirvana mm-hmm. song, you know. Yeah. Um, a David Bowie cover, as he says it on the record. Yeah, <laughs> Bowie. That's one of three acceptable uh, <laughs> pronunciations on this show. Um, is that turned me on to David Bowie? 
personally, um, it's a great, it's a, probably a definitive version of that song. The Vaseline's versions are probably definitive versions of those songs as well, I would say. But their, you mean uh, Nirvana versions yeah, of the Vaseline uh, yeah, songs? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Um, yeah, as somebody that went out and bought the Vaseline's and then took it right back to the shop, <laughs> I can uh, attest to that. Um, it's, it's just masterful. It really is, um, and it must have been. There must have surely been something to have been there and and, and see it in person. Mm-hmm. Um, it did broaden their appeal, and I'm glad for that. And you're right; it does round their legacy off in a very nice way. It's a good capper to to a career. Fortunately, you know. But across those five canon records, Bleach, Nevermind, Incesticide, In Utero, and Unplugged, they have hit a lot of markets mm-hmm. They, I mean I'm not trying to be too cynical about it because I don't think the band were being too cynical about it but they have checked a lot of boxes for a lot of different disparate musical groups mm-hmm. and given them an, an inroad and more than one inroad you know and I think that is a remarkable achievement and it's part of why they have a seismic fucking impact on alternative music mm-hmm. I agree um, and so the middle the fulcrum of those five Let's fucking talk about it. Incesticide. Mm-hmm. Incesticide is, despite the fact it was released by the biggest band in the world at the height of their mm-hmm. career, uh, a rarities collection. Um, rarities were big fuck off asterisk the size of the sun supposedly Jonathan Pone of Sub Pop had contacted Geffen Sub Pop had a collection of rare material and b-sides and were sort of planning a release but had nothing like the distribution network they offered the tracks to Geffen for use in exchange for a lump sum I think perhaps there was probably other machinations behind that decision too but who knows the, the point being that Geffen decided on the back of the success of Nevermind but also Nirvana's I mean, they did a seven-month promotional tour that left Kurt absolutely fucked up. And they probably had a good idea that at this point, this guy had some serious addiction problems. It might not be the case that they could get an album out of him within a year or 18 months. So this seemed a good option. Um, The working title for the album, by the way, uh, Filler or A Throwaway at one Mm -hmm. point gives a good insight into the attitude towards it Um, the actual title Incesticide may or may not it's kind of unconfirmed uh, be taken from a track by the the artist Fetus kind of industrial electronic artist who did stuff with Nanny Snails amongst many, many other things in his career. Anyway, um, the, that track was released just months beforehand and given that it appeared in a compilation that featured bands like Tad, Jesus, Lizard and Melvins, there is a fair chance that Kurt was aware of Incesticide, the song, but we don't know. Um, so Incesticide has Kurt and Chris on every tune plus an array of drummers uh, 15 tracks, 44 minutes, 7 different recording sessions over 3 years with 5 different producers It hit the charts at number 14 in the UK, number 39 in the USA and number 22 in Australia uh, As we said earlier on, sales upwards of 2 million but that's versus Nevermind which is way above 30 million now and In Utero which is over 15 million its concept was loosely built around a sort of light side and a dark side and apparently that's sort of partly based on the fact that originally Kurt had been toying with the idea of doing Nevermind as a male and a female side 
didn't come to pass clearly um, NME at the time in particular distinguished between the two sides of incesticide giving side A a much much better review they had said of the second side uh, patients testing material from an embryonic green river fixated nirvana is best forgotten unless you're truly smitten that same year, uh, the year that Incessi came out in 92, their only other releases were on splits or compilations. So you had Curmudgeon, you had Oh the Guilt, you had Return of the Rat on that Greg Sage box set. Uh, and you also had Kurt's kind of caustic improvisational guitar with William S. Burroughs on a track called The Priest They Called Him. Well, some joker didn't cure it. The buyer looks at the case with cold disfavor. Not even right sure he killed it, whatever it is. Free is the best I can do it. Which is a kind of spoken word mini mm-hmm. audiobook. I actually had this back in the day. It may well be being that pile of CDs behind you, Mark. I haven't looked in a long time. Um, as the writer Nick Soulsby observed in his article for The Vinyl Factory, the world's biggest pop rock band were suddenly allergic to crowd-pleasing. Um, Nova Selleck had told uh, the guy who'd become biographer, Michael Azarad, uh, that incesticide felt like returning to the source uh, mm-hmm. and was consistent with the direction that they were actually heading in already for In Utero, uh, a punk band, remembering it was a punk band uh, in short. Chris said, uh, we thought it would be something nice for the fans just to see where we're coming from. Some of the stuff is kind of wild. It's maybe the step we'll take because the pendulum is swinging back in that direction and so it won't be that much of a shock. The reaction to the album at the time, I obviously wasn't familiar with this, so it was quite interesting going back and looking. The album, I think, arguably benefited from some of that strange press psychology, again, referring to the Pitchfork Effect double episode that we've done, whereby a number of publications had kind of failed to spot the genius slash mainstream appeal and never mind and that the, therefore they didn't want to be caught out twice, so they kind of lauded this with praise to compensate. Albeit, that said, Rolling Stone had written, quote, Nirvana was a great band before Nevermind topped the charts. Incesticide is a reminder of that and proof of Nirvana's ability on occasion to fail. The the record was given really low profile media support by by Geffen, very little publicity. So that's not surprising. (laughs) Well, they wired it out there as a stopgap. They wired it out there to keep fans interested, but I think they were unconvinced about it. I think they were unsure how it would perform, didn't want to blow a lot of money on it. And also, you know, if it misfired, they would look maybe a little bit less stupid Mm -hmm. if they hadn't really thrown their full weight behind it. It's achingly uncommercial. Yeah. Um, It was referred to as, quote, artist development tool by Geffen, the head of marketing, Robert Smith. What the fuck does that even mean? Uh, Well, Robert Smith had a few (laughs) things to say. He also cautioned punters, quote, you become an overnight fan of a true punk band and you better be prepared for what comes with it. Um, It was intended to give new fans insight into the band's origins, development and inspirations. That's actually pretty good on his part, to be fair. Yeah, totally, totally. (laughs) I mean, you get the feeling he was an actual fan. Mm. He was behind it. Um, Or just a very good spin guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that was not the full picture of course Because the record was also an attempt to beat bootleggers And cash in on the exploding market And rarities, CDs and tapes at the time Which is something the band Or maybe more accurately their label Did repeatedly in later years um, Cobain was initially very unconvinced About the idea of compilation But he came around and was sweetened To the whole prospect by The offer of being able to curate the entire thing Basically doing the art having the liner notes, the liner notes in particular, because at that time Nirvana and Kurt Cobain had a very thorny relationship with the press uh, feeling they were obviously misconstrued, misinterpreted and this was an 
opportunity to write to their fans directly. Those liner notes, I think, are a big part of this band's story in a weird way. Even though people haven't read them or haven't seen them in person, they play a really big part in the placing of the group on the spectrum of of musicians. As with the record itself, one of the main things that heavily revised liner notes focus on is name checking the bands that the members in Nirvana admired and want and they wanted to use their celebrity to try and elevate the original liner notes were basically one big fucking tirade, like a long rebuke of the journalist Lynn Hirschberg of Vanity Fair, whose fairly infamous article on Kurt and Courtney had led to all sorts of problems. I mean, Francis Bean was taken off them by child services. Uh, so they had a lot of run-ins with the authorities regarding her well-being, as well as just the couple's overall dysfunction being dragged into the public eye. It is rumoured that Kurt rewrote the liner notes 20 times, probably due to no small amount of pushback from the label, his bandmates, and I would imagine the lawyers to some of the passages in the notes, quote, this is Kurt writing, I don't feel the least bit guilty for commercially exploiting a completely exhausted rock youth culture because at this point in rock history, punk rock while still sacred to some, is to me dead and gone. Mm -hmm. We just wanted to pay tribute to something that helped us to feel as though we had crawled out of the dung heap of conformity, to pay tribute like an Elvis or Jimi Hendrix impersonator in the tradition of a bar band. I'll be the first to admit that we're the 90s version of Cheap Trick or The Knack, but the last to admit that it hasn't been rewarding. At this point, I have a request for our fans. If any of you in any way hate homosexuals, people of different colour or women, please do this one favour for us. Leave us the fuck alone. Don't come to our shows and don't buy our records. And the the line of notes finish with this fairly blunt statement. Last year, a girl was raped by two wastes of sperm and eggs while they sang the lyrics to her song Polly. I have a hard time carrying on knowing there are plankton like that in our audience. Sorry to be so anally PC, but that the way I feel and he signed it as Kurdt K-U-R-D-T aka the blonde one a la the kind of bleachy spelling of Kurt Cobain um, the, the sleeve note is tonally inconsistent to, to be kind to it and jarring it's pretty juvenile in places as ever I think for Kurt despite the rewrites it, I think it's still surprising it was included in the release albeit it actually only appeared in a kind of limited run of the release in the Vice article I'd actually mentioned this in part one, Cam Lindsay notes, uh, I think Cobain's liner notes may be the most significant thing about Incesticide. And I, I don't I don't think it's the most significant thing about it, but I absolutely understand kind of what they're getting at there. The liner statements were pivotal in the history and perception of the band. Uh, the, the, the homophobia paragraph alone, I would wager, in its own way, played a central role in their legacy mm-hmm. and drew them into the hearts of thousands of people including listeners to the show, you know, LGBTQ plus members of the audience, Nirvana were saying, you are very fucking welcome. And the people at our gigs that make you feel unwelcome, they're not welcome. And that is a massive arm being thrown around their shoulder by the biggest band in the world at that time, publicly, a band that were willing to go up and upset jocks by kissing each other and wearing dresses. And that there is... A huge cultural significance to what Nirvana did. You know, I'm not trying to do the white saviour thing, you know, these were basically cis white males but what they did was bold and meaningful and I think sincere not cynically motivated and they have always had a different place in my thinking as a result of that. Mm-hmm. 
No, I mean, yeah, I think you're right. Um, like comes back to what I said earlier on, right, about the DC hardcore scene. Clearly, that was a part of the ethos that he embraced and comes fully to the fore in statements like that. And it is probably the most significant part of that liner note. Yeah, having the biggest band in the world known to people who feel un, unrepresented uh, and their voice is not heard, knowing that you are heard by somebody as famous as Kurt Cobain is, yeah, that's that's going to be heartening. You He's know? got your back, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's that's a huge part of the legacy of Nirvana and the identity of that band. Um, the reappraisals of the album in the media, I mentioned that there's been a lot of retrospective articles on various anniversaries. Uh, Nick Solsbury, again in the Vinyl Factory, points out that despite the low-key promo campaign, it was also specifically released to cash in at Christmas, which is a little bit antithetical to the kind of punk spirit of it. He observed that it's hard not to admire Cobain's ability to magpie the guitar styles of the underground and combine them into, quote, his own unique idiom. I think that's one thing this album does very well is show Kurt Cobain aping, copying, ripping off, trying to be all manner of different other musical icons mm. and trying to find his own voice in the process. Uh, the Quietest did a 25th anniversary article by a guy called Brian Coney. Uh, he calls it quote, a well-defined snapshot of the origins of Nirvana and more a winding reel tracing the minor glories growing pains, hero worship and remarkable multiplicity of a punk band who could veer between bubblegum pop, sludge rock, sub-metallic grind and indie rock completely at whim. And unlike most compilations of its nature, it didn't attempt to conceal any of Nirvana's flagrant contradictions. It reveals the first unself-conscious lunge into the light from an act who obsessively identified with the 80s underground, a world overseen by the likes of Butthole Surfers, Scratch Acid, Flipper and the Melvins. And I think he's absolutely smashed it there. Like That's a really good bit of writing in terms of the fact that it doesn't try to cover up too many of the flaws. It's full of like weird, awkward things. Oh yeah, totally, uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's a very, very honest thing and probably the best way for us to really highlight that is to go through the, the tracks on it. Go for it. We do it. Yeah. Dive, we've given a few mentions here already. It was taken from the Sliver single and it was also in a thing called the Grunge Years, a compilation. From the early sessions for that second sub-pop album, Chad Channing on drums, Butch Vig Vig on production. Um, It became a mainstay of the live shows, became a really identifiable Nirvana song. And if you've watched the Live Tonight Sold Out, for example, the the dive video where he's got the kind of busty with the oranges stuffed into the, the bra and stuff like that. Like that that's really iconic, the tiara and stuff as well. So I've written here, it feels more complete than anything on Bleach, you know. It's still kind of got that sludgy feel to it, but it, also, it feels moving closer to Nevermind and some, yeah. of the, some of the heavier songs on Nevermind. Yeah, it's actually got those open chords at the end of each line that mm-hmm. are not something that would have been on Bleach, you're right. Yeah. They're much more of a Nevermind thing. Um, yeah, I, th- I quite enjoy the guitar tone of it as well, and I really like the tone of his voice on it. It really does work for me. Um, that's a good song, and, and Ferro kind of mentioned that a little bit when he talked about the sliver 
single anyway. But yeah, no, I think it's a really good way to start the record. And I think if you're if this is coming out after Nevermind, then you you kind of know this is before. This is probably came before Nevermind. If you're a long time from the band, you've probably already heard it because you've heard Slover. You've had, you've had the single. You've already heard yeah. it. If you've not, and your first blush is this, then you're kind of like, you know, I can hear where this band came from. I can hear some connective tissue here between the two records. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's it's a good missing link, isn't it? Mm. Uh, the second track, Sliver, spoke yes, about it yeah. in detail uh, with Ferro chipping in. Uh, this is Dan Peters from Mudhound on the drums. Um, they loved playing with Dan Peters, but uh, Chris Novoselic in particular has said in interviews they declined to ask him to join the band full-time because they just did not want to be responsible for breaking up Mudhoney mm-hmm. because they fucking loved Mudhoney mm-hmm. as well. And I'm sure a lot of people would thank them for that. Mm-hmm. So Jack and Dino Productions, so you know we mentioned that, it's going back to that kind of older era. Rivers Como, of all people, has said that Sliver is the song that made the biggest impact in his early 20s. He's quoted as saying, It was just one of those things where by the time it got through the first chorus, I was just running around the store. It had the simplicity of the Velvet Underground and the structure and the chords and the melody and the major chord progression of the pop music I love like ABBA, but also the sense of destructiveness and it came out in this new hybrid style. Mm-hmm. And you can absolutely, like we talked about Weezer, or I actually said, you know, a simplified version of Weezer, bands like Fountain of Wayne, it, it is a template for a lot of that sort of stuff, that mm-hmm. sugar pop, mm-hmm. sugar rock, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it was a total classic. It's, like I said before, it's close to being a pop punk song. Um, it, the chorus is quite frivolous, which I like. He described it as being an experiment in dynamics, like half Japanese, ELP and ELO. I um, saw that, yeah. Which, I mean, it might be trolling a little bit there, especially with the ELO thing because their terms of dynamics for them is just making everything louder <laughs> we've done a whole episode on yellow including our synth pop record which is particularly good i think it is but no this song itself the melody is simply brilliant the way it kicks up a gear and it turns it turns on this sort of razor blade shredded vocal yeah really good touch you know it's the same it's the same template that you used for lounge act mm-hmm. you know verse chorus verse chorus go up an octave into the kind of full-throated thing um, and when the chorus does come in, there's a lovely harmony on it as well, which does have that kind of ABBA esque feel. No, doesn't it doesn't feel like ABBA at all, really. But you know, it's the same kind of harmonic thing that they do. Mm. You know, I think if you ever write simple pop, somebody's going to say ABBA. Yeah. Uh, the third track, "Stain" from the Blue EP, two minutes forty. <laughs> This is the first kind of coarse, difficult moment. It's it's far from Nirvana's best track, and it's actually the track looking back at Incesticide with you know a bit of objectivity. There's so many things on their Incesticide collections that they could have put on here that I think would have been slightly better. But Kurt wanted to go with it. Um, it's produced by Steve Fisk, who'd also recorded Soundgarden, Low, Boss Hog, loads of other people. Chad Channing on drums. Fairly straightforward. It's 
not one of my favourites, but it's yeah. it's fine. It's just it's there to balance the record out. Uh, it's pretty much a non-event for me, to be honest. Um, the riff is kind of cool, but I like a lot of the stuff that's on Bleach. It doesn't really grab me. The guitar solos are pretty nice, and the co- the guitars and the chorus have got a kind of Melvin's feel to it, just in the progression. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just there. Do you know what it mean? doesn't. See, I know what you mean by Bleach, but it's too fast for Bleach. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why it didn't fit. Yeah, you can imagine right, it being yeah. slowed down by ten or fifteen BPM and mm-hmm. maybe making the cut. Uh, the fourth track, "Being a Son." Big track for Nirvana. This is a previously unreleased alternate version. The original version was recorded by Butch Vig, Vig for Sub Pop, uh, you know, the album number two, uh, and then came out in the Blue EP and later on the Nirvana collection. Um, that's the one that features a kind of overdriven bass solo, which mm-hmm. isn't on this. This is from BBC session with Mark Goodyear from November 1991 and has Mr. Dave Grohl on drums. Yeah, I think this is the best version of the song, to be honest. Yeah, it is. It, is. Um, it, shows, that, it shows that when they were at the top of their game, they were completely flawless. The mix is cracking. Dave's harmony vocal is banging. There's a wild bass wah in the chorus section, which is just yeah. completely it's bizarre. It's not as wild as the other version, though. Honestly. Yeah, it's completely bizarre. And when I heard this song and staying back to back, I kind of started to realise that Dave Grohl made them less sludgy as a player. Yeah, definitely. You know, and and I'm putting those two back to back was probably conscious in some way. He's put like a really awkward song in between two quite poppy songs, Slover yeah. and Being a Son, you know. And the next song is Turnaround, which is a Devo cover. Which Turnaround. Is a, yeah. It's a really though, good cover. Yeah, it's, it's it's a good choice because it doesn't sound like Nirvana. Mm-hmm. And so you hear them sounding like something different. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it, like a lot of the things they cover, you know, the Vaseline stuff that we'll talk about in a moment, they try and make it sound like Nirvana. Mm-hmm. Turnaround doesn't, it's just too weird. It's almost like got a kind of, I say industrial pop, it's not industrial, but there's a strangeness to it mm-hmm. that can only come from playing a band like Devo in a different style. Uh, it was on the Hormoning EP that I'd, Lauded praise on It was actually part of A BBC John Peel session In 1990 Yeah Dave Grohl on drums And I think it could only Have happened to Dave Grohl on drums It yeah. needs to be tight Don't believe him Go for that crazy sound restaurant they're gonna try And get me Don't you let him do it You know what I'm talking about You hear me talking that's that's would make it one of the first recordings with Dave Grohl and drums in, wouldn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's a great it's a great cover. The bass tone is cracking on it, really gnarly. It's got a nice energy to it, you know that yeah. that live energy. Uh, like I said about the last song, when they were on it, they were on it. Yeah, the power trio thing. They they nailed it, and Dave Grohl was how they nailed it. I think. Um, they needed somebody with actual groove. <laughs> it's pretty scary. Yeah, it's pretty scary. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, well not. Uh, land weaver in hot water here but then you've got your first of your Vaseline's covers Molly's Lips Uh, it's by, the original 
Yeah, <laughs> just need to say it like right out of the gate here. Yeah, <laughs> by, written by Eugene Kelly and Francis McKee, aka the Vaselines. I have probably mentioned this before when drunk at Christmas, but I met Eugene once at an Idlewild show at Stirling University. That sounds like a bag of laughs. Uh, he was opening for them under the guise of Eugenius. And Steady on, Eugene. Yeah. And I went up to him, I was like, fucking, I really like what you've done. Lie. And um, can, I, can I get you a drink? And he was fucking rude. Why? What he was did... just really fucking ignorant. Oh, man. Like, I was like, 18, 19 And I wasn't being annoying I wasn't I was never that Kind of like super fan I was just like Hey man I happened to recognise him Nobody was really bothered I was like You know Really like your stuff You know Nah Wasn't he fucking interested I was like Can I get you a drink I Got my drink Took it back to him Handed it to him He took it off me Walked away That was it Nothing Not a fucking word Just like Fuck's sake Lovely guy Bullshit Um, um And not a guy that was slow to get into the fucking daily record and talk about how good uh, a pally was with Kurt Cobain mm-hmm. at every fucking opportunity over the years. There you go. I fucking attacked his reputation, <laughs> Dave. I've done it for you. Who gives a fuck? I can see it because I'm not going to book him. Um, yeah, Dave Grohl on drums, but really it could have been fucking anyone because the song is basic as fuck. I don't particularly care for the Vaseline stuff. Oh, I like Jesus Don't Want Me For A Sunbeam. I think that's good son of a gun and molly's lips are totally frivolous they're fine they're fun they're throwaway uh they don't have any real lasting appeal for me uh so i would like to say that the original version of this song is annoying as absolute fuck really really irritating uh, they're they very twee yeah um Kurt Cobain didn't want to release this originally because um, he felt it wasn't particularly strong they had it on a split yeah, he no, didn't want it to be on. He didn't want it to be on that. He didn't want it to be on that. Um, if you if you look at the if you if you do some research on that, he was like he didn't want it to be on it. But I guess it just happened because he didn't like it. There's a few different versions of it. There's a few different versions of everything, really, isn't there? His voice sounds like he could have had a few more goes at it. So I can kind of see where he's coming from in that regard. Um, I like the energy of it. The guitar tone is quite cool. Son of a gun. Dave Grohl's doing a D-beat and it tra- totally transforms the song into a, a straight-up punk rock song. His voice, again, sounds like it's kind of warming up a little bit, though, and the guitars sound D-eyed, which is weird. But, yeah, whatever, man. That's the problem with a John Peel session. It's like, you know, you've only you've only got so many takes. Mm-hmm. That's it. You're like, in there, play it out. Sorry, guys. Yeah. And then the same session as this Polly cut, this version of Polly? Uh, no, no, Polly came from the Mark Goodyear sessions, okay. and that's Dave Grohl on drums. Maybe she wants Previously unreleased alternate version of Polly, you know, fast and punk rock Polly, as people used to call it. It's good. It's yeah, fine. It's really good. I like it I a mean, lot, man. The thing that Polly's sort of that acoustic thing, though, you know, it's it's nice as a novelty, but I think the the, the acoustic version, the the creepy version, was always the definitive one. It's a great showcase of Dave's playing. I think on the drums. Yeah, um, that's true. Totally yeah. smashes it. I also like how composed Kurt's voice sounds, given how fast it is. Mm-hmm. You know, he sound. It doesn't actually sound like he's. 
using that much effort at all. Yeah, his lungs are good in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can absolutely tell he's he's not struggling. Yeah, um, the, um, the drumming is the start of the show though. So this is where it goes into the, well actually I think Paulie was the start of that second side if I remember, or was at the end of the first side but you know, remember I said the enemy really distinguished between the first and the second side the dark side, light side mm-hmm. I find the dark side way more interesting so we're getting into it now with Beeswax, the ninth track It was on a Kill Rockstars compilation recorded by Jack and Dino, the guy that was spoken about so many times. Dale Crover from Melvin's on Drums. It's a fucking weird, ugly song. And it really is that side of grunge that was dead fucking awkward. slowed down punk rock Nirvana wrote it and there's very few other bands that could have written it I think just the way it is it's mm. a very very strange tune but I like it there's a fair amount of discourse online about it this is one of Nirvana's lowest points musically it feels quite sludgy the lyrics are indecipherable the chorus is cool though yeah it feels quite druggy actually you can definitely tell it's the dark side of the record right? it, it, it is druggy but this, this is the thing like coming off the back of that sugar fucking hit of the Vaseline songs at least um yeah, I, I I like it. I think it's so fucking obtuse that there's something about it that a bit like Bleach, it's got staying power because mm. it doesn't fit. And I, I, I dig that about it. And I feel kind of the same about a few of them on this side. Now, Downer, many people would have already heard because it came out in the CD version of Bleach over mm. here. Jack and Dino again, technically a fecal matter song, so it was pre-Nirvana becoming Nirvana. Down is a great tune. I like it. I, I love the drum beat in it. It's a really interesting way to write a song and probably formed the basis of the idea for it. Mm-hmm. I like the drums on it as well. I've, I've noted that too. The bass is like that rattly quality to it, which I quite like in a bass. And the, the vocals sound very 80s. There's like a, almost like an 80s rock feel to the vocal. And the chorus, it's kind of twisted, a kind of twisted version of that. But yeah, it's fine. You know, it's it seems like it's of a piece with beeswax. Yeah, it does. It does. Mm. And another incredibly awkward one is Mexican seafood. Some truly terrible lyrics in that song. From a well, it's taken from a Teriyaki Asthma Volume One compilation. Uh, yeah, it's uh, lyrically strange. Dale Crover and drums. I mean, anytime Dale Crover's involved with Nirvana, the songs tended to be really fucking odd. Mm. Um, it's the same with the next one as well, Hairspray Queen. Hairspray Queen, as I understand it, was their fairly overt attempt to sound like Jesus Lizard. Yeah. <laughs> Do you like this song? Um, yes and no. I mean, it doesn't get anywhere close to being as good as a Jesus Lizard song. But it, again, it's just so fucking weird. 
these three Dale Crover tunes here are just so weird that they have longevity. Well, actually, sorry, Downer was Dale Crover as well, but I mean, the, the, the Beeswax, Mexican Seafood and Hairspray Queen, they're just so odd. And I don't think they're great songs, but their strangeness mm. gives them lasting power to me. Because I still don't really think I get where they came from or why they happened, but that's all right, actually. For Mexican Seafood, there's a guitar breakdown, which is very 80s and it Fergie's on metal but it shows that Kurt could really play the guitar which is what I was talking about earlier on I think he's underappreciated in some in some ways I've seen some people online saying this is quite influenced by the band Scratch Acid. I've never yeah. heard. Well, Scratch Acid is the, the precursor to Jesus Lizard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and Hairspray Queen, I've written, I wonder if Chris likes this song because it's weird, angular and noisy like Jesus Lizard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I don't particularly like the bass line in it. Which I hate it, I absolutely hate it. It's farty, the bass is farty. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think that's the thing that puts me off. But in terms of that spanky, weird guitar when I was younger I didn't like it but the more like I mean, when I was younger I took that Jesus Lizard vinyl back to the shop so mm. what the fuck did I know yeah. <laughs> so as I got older I started to get into that and as you say the guitar line and especially around the middle is fucking good there's also some really cool snarly vocals in it it's the vocals that turn me off really, for this song really howling mm-hmm. It just feels kind of thrown together to me, this song. Maybe. Um, but again, it's a band trying to ape a band they love. Yeah. You know, and that's what we have all the way through this, like mm. a naked example of this group. We've all done it, man. We've all, we've all yeah, done it. Totally. All musicians have done we it. We mixed results mm. and they're brave enough. And Kurt chose to put this on here. He was like, fuck it, put it on there. Let people hear what we've been into. The next song's another <laughs> perfect example. Track 13, Aero Zeppelin, taking Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin and slamming them together in the name. Dale Crover on drums again. I absolutely fucking love this tune. This is, without a doubt, one of my favourite Nirvana tunes, and it shouldn't work. It's so odd. It doesn't sound like anything else they did. It's really rattly. It feels like it's about to fall apart at a number of points. There is something so bizarre about this song, and I always loved it. Right back in the day when I was really struggling to get to grips with some of their other output, for some reason this just clicked. I really fucking dig this tune. I do like it, it's got some mean riffs. They actually sound like twisted Led Zeppelin riffs. 
closing the name. And when it goes off the rails around 1 minute 20, it sounds like it's about to just completely fall apart. I loved it. It fucking jams as well, man. There's some bits where they drop down into those lower riffs and mm. they are fucking swinging. Dale Clover should have taken another pass at the drums though because some of the double kick work is very sloppy. Yeah, and some of the fills are a bit sloppy yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, but it's also got a really great anti-solo in it as well, mm-hmm. which which does work. It, it works for me and it's a, it's a standout of the, in the second half of the record, which I feel as though is quite listless feeling. And that's probably why these songs didn't go much further with Dale Clover, you know, because mm-hmm. I think they were for a release or for a version of a record that they were going to do and it doesn't really go anywhere because they all... F- they, I like that they're trying different things with all these songs, but they're not the same band. And yeah, this is this is no a version of Nirvana you know? that that had no breakthrough potential, yeah, yeah. no cohesion. Absolutely. Basically. In the context of a band I already liked, I love Aero Zeppelin. I enjoy Beeswax. I enjoy dipping back into Mexican seafood and stuff. But they would never have gotten to my attention if Dale Crover was the drummer. I don't think. I yeah. think there's something too obtuse about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Big Long Now, got a mention recently actually when we did the Headswim episode because I think this really sounds like a like a, um, a basic version of Safe Harvest from the end of that, like goth grunge. There's something very slow and stodgy but quite melodramatic about it that I, I think those things marry quite well um, in it though Chad Channing plays drums in it and you really hear him slowing down and speeding up during the take but mm. again Cup wanted to keep it in there well apparently Kurt felt this was a rip off of Sister Europe by a Psychedelic Furs which is why they stopped playing it live Stupid I think they only put it live three or four, to, uh, two or three times. Interesting. Um, but obviously, he still liked it because it's on this, and he had, a, he had to say, like, like you said, he chose the, the the track list for this. I like how his voice sounds in it. The chorus riff is really nice. The song's got a lot of atmosphere and space, which I think is quite interesting for an Vanishing. Usually when they're doing slower stuff, there's not space. There's just sludgy riffs. There's, there's a bit of atmosphere to this song, which makes it feel a bit different from the rest of the stuff on the record, I think. But then we've got the last song on the record, Aneurysm. Yeah. Something of a significant tune. Yeah. Um, Legendary tune. Yeah, so this is not the one not from the, the, hor- the Hormoning yeah. EP, yeah, we should say that. It's from BBC Session with Mark Goodyear again, November 1991 with Dave Grohl. Uh, Stephen Erlewine of All Music reckons this is, quote, perhaps the greatest single song the band ever recorded. Come on.
mean, this version of it has some production done to it as well, because you can hear it in some of the way that the 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 as are overdubbed to give it a kind of creepy feel in the chorus. The harmony's kind of strange. They've actually got a similar kind of harmonic thing going on in a heart-shaped box. If you listen to the Steve Albini mix, it's got a creepy harmony on the chorus. And um, they do something similar in this as well. Yeah, it's a, I think it is probably one of the best Nirvana songs. It's in my top five for sure. Um, it's a great bit of work. We used to do a cover of it, my, my first band. Yeah, I was a big fan of it. Um, I think I was a big fan of it because it's strange, because it checks so many boxes, whilst I have to admit to being strangely indifferent emotionally to it. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anything like the emotional connection with the song as I did with Lounge Act or Drain You or Serve the Servants or even like Floyd the Barber or something like that. I just thought it was such a fucking well-written song. It is, it's clever. Cerebrally, I was like, this is fucking great. And it just was so in our wheelhouse that we we, we played it quite a number of times. But yeah, uh, it's odd because there's a duality there where I am incredibly appreciative of how great and how significant this song is within their arsenal. Yet emotionally, it doesn't reach me. I mean, there are a number of tracks that never made a single of their official releases that I find way more affecting. Mm -hmm. For me, I like how it marries together the sludgy bit of Nirvana with the Nevermind bit of Nirvana. It's a nice bit of connective tissue again. I always felt like, I know it's at the opposite end of the record from Dive, but I felt it came from a really similar place. Yeah, I think think you're probably right with that. Um, The harmonies, I said, are great. The beat it, beat it chant is quite 80s hardcore. But my favourite part of the song is that she keeps it bumping straight to my heart right yeah. at the end. That's. I mean, this is a live session. Yeah, I know. Like, like, but it's got some production shot uh, afterwards done to it. But can you imagine like a Nevermind-esque production of this? Also, it was a B-side of Teen Spirit as well. Just in terms of if this had been nailed in the studio the way the likes of Smells Like Teen Spirit or yeah. In Bloom, for example, mm-hmm. were. Mm-hmm. In Bloom, I think, is quite similar in feel and they captured that perfectly. Imagine this. Yeah. Uh, and that's incesticide and I guess you know my conclusions on it um, you know I'm going to start with something a bit more general here right and there's an unpopular opinion alert straight (laughs) out the gate here and I say this as a multiple plaid shirt owning mega fan card carrying mega fan to the extent I've been fucking mocked relentlessly by friends for this Nirvana and Kurt showed a juvenile sensibility that I think was okay early on but even at 27 he didn't really seem to be growing out of it An example I would give would be the song Rape Me And you know some of their teenage diary artwork The the cover of Incesticide for example Is fine but the cover of In Utero even As much as I share some of what Fritz said about it There is something that's getting a little bit grating About this morbid, gothy, self-indulgent mopiness to it I mean some of the demos in the box sets they, they show that as well I think his general behaviour and his failure to rein in some of his personal demons you know despite becoming a father kind of signal a little bit of emotional immaturity as well his failure to recognise both his own and Courtney's dismal fucking behaviour 
I mean, the, the way you responded to that Vanity Fair thing, for example, and don't get me wrong, I imagine having your child taken off you is a fucking horrendous thing, but you are two very public heroin users and there were a number of instances where people were probably right to be concerned. There's a lack of self-awareness. This was an emotionally immature young man, in some ways mature, artistically mature and empathetic and intelligent but very self-involved at points and just stunted uh, in certain ways. Who knows, you can go and read about the divorce and the impact on him and stuff like that, but I just, uh, I worry that Nirvana may not have aged very well past In Utero. You know, another album of feeling victimised, another record moaning about the world, making you successful and then demanding you to make public appearances, another album of claiming to want to reject success but then also going and making compromised decisions around potentially hit singles, you know, more painting weird dolls and gnarly angels and lady parts and stuff. I think a watershed was due when Nirvana, one way or the other, did Kurt Cobain actually have that in him? Would the band that followed In Utero have been as good as the band that made In Utero? I'm not sure, man. I think there's a point where people were about to grow out of them in that form, unless they did something that that pushed them on. And and let's be honest, though, they had shown that they would evolve from album to album. They, they probably had it in them. It's just whether or not they were going to do it, or were they going to, in their drug-fueled fucking haze and dysfunction, just start treading water and making stuff that became a little bit cringeworthy as the guy got into his thirties. So I don't know. I'm just saying it's it's all speculation, but it's always been on my mind. Uh, as regards the album, it says to say there's not one focused artistic vision, you know, and but as a result of that, it doesn't fall into a lot of the traps that caught Nirvana. Those maybe being recording on a shoestring with a drummer that isn't at your level. In the mm-hmm. case of Bleach, uh, recording a melodic punk album with Butch Vig that's then seized, squashed, buffed up into one of the all-time supermassive rock records. You know, something that also catapults the protagonists into a world they clearly never anticipated, nor prepared for. Um, or another trap, I think, recording an edgy response record in the form of Neutro with a super hit producer, but then being torn between these pop instincts and you know wanting to be cool with the punk crowd. So I think Nirvana had all these different traps and pitfalls that they fell into. And Sesticide didn't let that happen because it wasn't a considered thing in that respect. So the result is completely unrefined and definitely offers one of the most honest insights into the musical development and the personalities of the group. It's incredibly honest of Kurt to put some of this stuff on here. You know, Stain, for example, we talked about that. Um it jumps around, it has two halves with distinct atmospheres, it's very flawed, sometimes messy, and I think has a fairly obvious commercial subcurrent just in terms of its reason for being. Yeah, it's also melodic, it's endearing, it's honest, it makes some real political and personal statements, especially in the, the sleeve notes and the legacy. It wears its influences on its sleeve, it tries to pay back to the underground from whence it emerged, and as a record that really demonstrates vulnerability, warts and all. There you go. There's there's a whole fucking bunch of stuff that we've been doing. Um, would I be so brave as to let people hear some of our early recordings? Probably not. I'd probably be more censorious. Um, as I've said, I think as much truth about Nirvana can probably be gleaned from their outtakes and their rarities as from their central output. Uh, and all of these contradictions and more are the essence of the band and they're only glimpsed in a sort of collage across the entirety of the rest of their work, whereas Incesticide succinctly encapsulates the whole bloody, frustrating, juvenile, self-indulgent and brilliant mess of it all. 
Yeah, so the record itself, I, I like how honest it is, and I enjoy the fact that Kurt was trying to do something, basically kicking completely against Nevermind, and he's been given an opportunity to do it quite openly and quite publicly on and quite commercially. The cynic in me says that that's him trying to appeal back to the punk crowd again, like you said. Yeah. Uh, is that juvenile? That is that juvenility? Is that a word? The juvenile Let's instinct. You know, it is a juvenile instinct. And again, it's that it is the contradiction of Kurt Cobain. It is the, oh, I'm so, oh, I'm so famous now and I've made this really great record. That record's overproduced and now I don't really want to be that famous, but I still want to have all the trappings that come with it. You know, oh, I've got an opportunity to release another record full of the, all the, all the shitty heady parts that I don't want anybody to Let's see. Let's put four tracks of Dale Crover out so we'll yeah, see cool again. Exactly. And it's, to me this is the least essential Nirvana release in some regards when taken together with uh, with the with the lights out box set it does paint a human picture of a band and a, that was constantly evolving and so, like musically to some degree that was always trying to like you said wear its heart on its sleeve and give back and let people know exactly what they were all about whether it was the shiny polished stuff or the horrible sludgy inaccessible stuff mm-hmm. um See, I, I, I agree with you there, but I, I think it's the least essential in terms of Nirvana, the successful rock act. Mm-hmm. But it's the most essential if you want to know what Nirvana were. Like, if, you, if you're just a passive music consumer, never mind in utero and unplugged are the three for people that want a superficial understanding of Nirvana. Mm. Bleach, a wee bit deeper. But I think Incesticide is the one that, like, who the fuck were these people and what were they doing? This is the one that gives you all that prehistory and all those backroom demos and radio sessions. And I think it's a very, very big step into understanding a band that had a little bit more about them than a lot of their peers. I've got two thoughts about what you just said there. I'll pick up the second one first in that if Kurt Cobain was emotionally stunted then this record probably would not have happened so there was clearly some kind of emotional need for him to kind of prove to the world that oh here you can you can now learn about me a little bit more a little bit deeper you know and find out more about who what makes me tick as a musician and what makes this band what is the engine that powers this band mm-hmm. uh, the first point I don't think that necessarily just like in in an outro and never mind in MTV unplugged well I think there's a lot of people who are not casual listeners that are massive lovers of the band that only take on those three records and that's all they need. That is Nirvana, right? You can't escape the fact that that is Nirvana. It just is. Yeah. Incesticide and Bleach are also Nirvana, but they are not the Nirvana that we know. And those records have been loved dearly and been very, very influential. And yeah, I, I think a lot of casual listeners, a lot of like fervent fans of the band are happy to disregard this part of it and happy to disregard Bleach because... That's not Nirvana to me. Um, the, the big trick that Kurt Cobain and Nirvana pulled was the fact they were able to somehow wrench themselves out of trying to impress their peers and be the punk kids and do something which was, they didn't know was going to work, but did fucking work. It worked like gangbusters, you know what I mean? Mm. And I guess that that's when he started to realise, hang on, all the things I've ever, I've ever wanted, that maybe I didn't like them in the first place. So I think, I think they managed I to do? wrench themselves out, but only ever temporarily. I don't think they ever wrenched themselves out of that mindset completely. I don't think Kurt did. Dave clearly was very comfortable with that, and he's gone on to be extremely fucking comfortable with <laughs> Too that. Too comfortable. Right? And I think there's probably forces at play within the band that maybe made Kurt, Kurt feel comfortable with it in parts. Yeah, but then, I mean, Unplugged is the biggest sustained mm-hmm. example of him wrenching himself out of that for a sustained period of time albeit it came out posthumously so uh, uh, the unplugged thing is the thing I think quite interesting because when I said that like there's some of the songs that would later I think that if Nirvana did let me start that again 
Unplugged is a really great example because some of the things that I think Nirvana would have went on to do would probably would have been Kurt Cobain becoming comfortable with being that guy because MTV Unplugged shows that he was becoming comfortable being that rock star guy to a large degree. And I do think they would, would have probably went on to make music which was safer and maybe more songwriter focused, pop focused or whatever. I do think that's what, the, what would have been direction of travel. Would the content be, have been any different? Well, I think I tend to agree with you there. I don't know if he would have been able to make that leap to, I mean, what would he write about next? He can, it's like Oasis trying to follow up uh, Morning, uh, Morning Glory, right? It's like, I'm not, fucking, not working class anymore, so what the fuck am I going to write yeah, about? Yeah. You know? So that would have been interesting to see how that would have went. Yeah, as, like I said, I think this is the least one of the least essential, probably the least essential Nirvana release to most people. I enjoyed digging into this and seeing who, what made this band work. Like I said, what is the engine of the band? This is the engine of the band. Everything that you need to know about how Nirvana became Nirvana is on this record. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, it's the Vaselines with the pop jangle stuff. It is all the sludgy weird experiments and it is the kind of noise rock e- explorations and it is the poppy stuff. It is Venus and, you know, and then you've got things like Aneurysm and Dive, which is the connective tissue between Bleach and Nevermind, which makes Nevermind somehow more powerful afterwards, yeah. you know, because you see the, the direction of travel. So... I'm torn on this record because I don't revisit it. I'm, I'm unlikely to go back to a lot of it. I never enjoyed it because it's so disparate to me. But also, I like Nirvana enough to know that this is a quite an essential component for me to, as you said, having a deeper understanding of the band. I think in their catalogue, it's probably quite inessential. But to certain fans and to me, everything's essential if you like them enough, right? Everything's essential. You're never going to... You're never going to turn down here in a weird, a weird Nirvana song you've never heard before. <laughs> yeah, there's a certain previous. Yeah. Just that's never going to happen. Yeah, and I think that's quite interesting, and that's what makes this band quite entertaining beyond the music. Is like figuring out what is our we know what their legacy is broadly, right? But there's a lot of nuance to it. Just know? think, if I'd never got into Nirvana, I could be sitting here right now in leathers. You could be. That'd be <laughs> weird, and we wouldn't be speaking. <laughs> I'd be squeaking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I can't believe it, but we did an episode on Nirvana. We did two episodes on Nirvana. Um, Maybe three. <laughs> yeah. Shall we do an exercise? Yeah. Mine's just mercifully brief. So Mercifully brief, yeah. you say. Well, I wish I could say the same. complicated series of connections between different things. Uh, so this week, uh, Davy Bright is Davey a lucky Bright. guy. Uh, he suggested Mary Stuart Masterson. And whenever someone suggests a name that I sort of vaguely know but don't know, I always expect there to be some deep dark secret now. So you kind of go to their Wikipedia and you expect to scroll down yeah. to a chapter that says death or scandal or uh, controversy. But yeah. no, there isn't really one with Mary Stuart Masterson. Yeah, she just, just seems like yeah, a, an so actress. Yeah. Was in a bunch of films, was in Benny and June and various other things. She's um, like, yeah, remark- she, remarkably unremarkable. <laughs> but uh, it also did strike me like, lol, how can we possibly link a Gen X actress to Nirvana? <laughs> you know, someone that starred with Johnny Depp and Drew Barrymore. Hmm, I wonder. <laughs> but I thought, fuck it, I'll rope in some Nazis. Of course you will. Do you want to go first and then I'll Yeah, do? sure. Um, so, Anutero was recorded with Steve Albini. 
a few years later in 1996, he worked on the the Bush the Bush album Razor Blade Suitcase classic. <laughs> In 2019, Bush worked with his producer and composer Tyler Bates. Name ring a bell? No, really, no. Tyler Bates is perhaps best known for his work on movie soundtracks. He's he's got quite a close relationship with Zack Snyder as well as uh, David Leitch, um, who directed John Wick, Atomic Blonde, Deadpool 2. Mm-hmm. He's done the music for all the John Wick films and also a co- close association with James Gunn. The only James Gunn projects he's not done is the Last Guardians film and Peacemaker TV series. He's, he's scored everything else James Gunn's done. So, yeah, he's hugely collaborative with a slight amount of filmmakers, but he's also done a whole lot of other work beside. He did, he did, he did two records with Marlon Manson as well. Um, but he also worked on a 2019 Bush album, the name of which I haven't written down, but he co-produced that. 2019? Fuck it. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. I don't know. At least another one in 2022, uh, so they're still going. Um, but yeah, so he worked with Bush on a record recently and he also did the soundtrack for a film which is coming out in October called Five Nights at Freddy's which stars Mary Stuart Masterson. So. Oh wow, okay, well we got there suddenly. Yeah. Uh, mine is uh, a little bit more grim. <laughs> Nirvana toured Europe with Teenage Fan Club in 1992. Uh, Kurt Cobain referred to them once as the best band in the world although Norman Blake for the band did point out that they weren't even his favourite band in Glasgow, thanks to the Vaselines. Uh, I think I've probably shared anecdotes about that in the Christmas episodes. Go back and fish them out. Uh, Teenage Fan Club featured on a 1991 Vox cover mounted cassette called The Mark Radcliffe Sessions, alongside Nick Cave, Suede and more. Mark Radcliffe, as we have mentioned before in the show, was an early drummer for the infamous neo-Nazi band Screwdriver mm-hmm. before their initial split in 1979. That is to be clear... He was a member before they transitioned into a fully blown sort of RAC, Rock Against Communism, neo-Nazi punk act. They reformed in 1982 with different members and that's when they took that on board. However, curiously enough, Screwdriver frequently performed a cover of the song Tomorrow Belongs to Me way back in 1979, uh, before the split and the reform and the rebrand. By the way, Suggs was also a roadie for Screwdriver. Oh, wow. Um, their first record All Screwed Up doesn't feature any of the neo-Nazi themes that they later became known for but they were an established skinhead group that many promoters in England uh, refused to book due to the violence at the shows um, but they're playing this track Tomorrow Belongs to Me back in 1979 the original version of that tune was actually the last song to ever be played on Voice of Tomorrow that's two hyphen moral don't fucking ask me why I don't know which is a white supremacist neo-Nazi radio station op- Operating in Oregon in the 1980s Mm. Um, The lyrics to the song may explain why Oh fatherland, fatherland, show us the sign Your children have waited to see The morning will come when the world is mine Tomorrow belongs to me Okay Ringing any other bells? No? So that station was set up and run by neo-Nazi writer and broadcaster Kevin Alfred Strom However... (laughs) The fact that the song was taken from the anti-fascist play film Cabaret in 1966 and written by two Jewish composers, <laughs> John Kander and Fred Ebb, definitely does not tally. But somewhere a glory of its unseen Tomorrow belongs to me it's also worth noting that uh, John Kander, I think it's his son, pointed out that his dad was in a same-sex marriage for a, a most of his life. Yet, it's the last song played on the Voice of Tomorrow uh, neo-Nazi radio station and Screwdriver were fucking loving it. So, 
Regardless, the song has made a lot of appearances since on the far right uh, for the likes of Prussian Blue, for Anders Breivik quoting it, for Richard Spencer, many, many, many more. That particular radio neo-Nazi scumbag, Strom, was convicted of possession of child pornography and even accused of writing lyrics to a love song for a 10-year-old girl promising uh, his intention to marry her. He wasn't convicted of the latter charge, but he was convicted of possession of child pornography. However, he is now best known for misattributed quotes um, from his 1993 essay, All Americans Must Know the Terror That Is Upon Us. The, the most famous misattributed quote is generally paraphrased as, To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. Have you heard this one? Mm-hmm. Right, so there's variations on it, but it's uh, frequently generally attributed to French 18th century satirist Voltaire. Yeah, Voltaire. Wrongly. Mm-hmm. It wasn't by Voltaire. Mm-hmm. It was by Strom mm-hmm. from that 1993 how did, how, how did it end up getting attributed to Voltaire? Just seems to have caught on in a bunch of memes. So, for example, in 2019, just such a misattribution was carried out by none other than John Cusack. He hurriedly deleted a tweet of a giant hand emblazoned with a star of David, crushing a group of people and that quote alongside it. And Cusack also, by the way, included his own commentary in that tweet, follow the money, which when it comes to doubling down on the anti-Semitism, fucking hell, John. But for the record, John Cusack is not the only person to wrongly attribute it to Voltaire, as I say, making good my promise from way, way back. Elon Musk, Elon Musk did it as well. Um, Shite Iron Man wannabe. <laughs> <laughs> so after that, uh, you know, the misattribution or whatever was brought to his attention, John Cusack wrote, A bot got me. I thought I was endorsing a pro-Palestinian justice retweet of an earlier post. It came, I think, from a different source. Shouldn't have retweeted. But some people also pointed out that he did initially try to defend the tweet before deleting it. John Cusack has had a patchy history uh, post-Trump, let's say. Anyway, as it also happens, Mary Stuart Masterson was born the same day as John Cusack and her real-life mother played Molly Ringwald's mum in 16 Candles alongside him. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah. Pulled that right out of the fire there, didn't you? (laughs) Pulled it right out of the fire. Excellent stuff. So that was a monster. It marks her first third three-parter, Mark. Our first, we've done Christmas specials that are four parters before. <laughs> that's true, but that's unfolding chaos. This was meant to, you know, adhere to a script. But I'm okay with that. I don't know if we could have done something as fucking massive as Nirvana in less time than that. And mm. we did avoid trying to retread much of the usual terrain. So give us a break, folks. Yeah, good on us. Yeah, give us a break. Give us a retweet. Get, well, you don't really do that anymore, do you? A re-ex. re-ex. <laughs> give us a share. Give us a tag. Give us a like. Um, give us a... Give, a us like. a, a, give us a money. <laughs> give us a pint. Give us a pint. Give us a fucking pint. Yeah. I've been talking for ages, man. I could definitely do with a pint. Mark, what is your favourite quote from a Nirvana song to finish this? Um, Come on, people there. It's not a Nirvana quote, is it? I was... Uh, I was Given the, the Nazi thing, I was going to say load up and guns and bring your friends, but <laughs> DeSantis has more been doing that this week. That's right. In, in Miami. They're probably still doing it, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, probably still There's going to be a lot of that in the horizon. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, what was stuck in my head when I, when I went to the toilet and came back in before we recorded again? Let's go with doll steak, test meat. <laughs> <laughs> doll steak, test meat. Yeah. Fuck's sake. Yeah, nothing sums up that <laughs> podcast like those four syllables. Um, let's, 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 let's do that. Well done. Thanks. Uh, what are we doing next week, Chris? 
I don't know if there will be a next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's uh, a lot on the old plate coming up. We have done this to buy ourselves a bit of time because we have a special episode coming next week. Mark has been slapping on a fake moustache and some dark rim glasses. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, to go undercover. and As he, a bot online. <laughs> as a bot online. Um, he's been upsetting the Swedish mafia and we don't mean the house mafia. Yeah, yeah that's but, dead creepy about I mean, it. Yeah, we're... We'll just tease it We'll mm-hmm. just tease it We have a documentary episode coming And there's a lot of research involved in it I think it'll be of a lot of interest to folks um, But stay tuned to our socials And we'll drop some hints in the uh, in the run up to it Yeah I, I feel for you Chris Because I've already undertaken quite a lot of the research <laughs> Yeah We've got a lot of catching up to do Mark But don't worry I've only got about 15 hours in Nirvana podcast to edit <sighs> Amazing <laughs> See you soon folks 